I'm Aaron. I'm Jonah. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Aaron, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I'm working on a game called Coup. It's a game about building your own language and using it to create civilizations of people. How do you spell that? K-U. Okay, that's... I would never have guessed. (laughs) What were you thinking? I was thinking coup like a a C-O-U-P. Oh, like the political sense. Like a a strategic move, yeah. (laughs) It's about toppling governments. Right. Uh, And Jonah, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, I'm Jonah. I was on the show before. I'm officially an alumni. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to plug again my website, works.rip. Still a good domain name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't lapsed in the last uh, month or two. And the goodness hasn't either. (laughs) Good. I do uh, uh, music-y art stuff and programmy art stuff and uh yeah things if you're curious check them out cool are we ready to start on some topics yeah all right jonah your topic here is graffiti based arguments yeah i mentioned this to aaron the other day actually this happened a while ago now but i saw here um in living in athens greece as will be relevant so I saw on the street someone had written a a piece of graffiti like like a sentence or a couple sentences and then somebody else crossed that out with a line of graffiti that was like thin enough so that you could still read it and then wrote a response underneath <laughs> that was like actually x y and z it was like political <laughs> graffiti and then anti political graffiti but it wasn't like they covered it up it was like they purposefully left it so you could see what the original person said and they wrote a response. It took up like a huge amount of the wall. I think I have a picture of it somewhere. Maybe you can link. Uh, but yeah, I just thought that was really funny. Like the idea of having like over the course of weeks or months, like a very civil and and old timey argument entirely through crossing each other's graffiti out. I mean, was it also visually, you know, was it was it like some some good looking graffiti or is it just a couple people with a spray can? No, yeah, like I think it was there's there's uh there's like tags, you know, which are like right, people's right. tags, but then there's this whole other world that from what I've seen which is just like text. It's like we're saying x <laughs> and y about the world and it's this. Like it's not it's it's not stylized just like script and they're okay. they're saying whatever they're saying. I'm just imagining somebody going around with stencils, you know, around Athens <laughs> like re-stenciling the stencil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember my most positive interaction with graffiti was in the bathrooms at a school that I went to where I would go in and sit in this stall to do my business and the wall would just be covered with content <laughs> and it would just, it would change every day because people added things and they were definitely like responding to each other and some people would doodle and I don't know if it was just the, the graffiti culture in this school, but it seemed, it felt really positive to me. It felt really like this is just a value add. And I don't know why people like complain about graffiti, like it shouldn't be there. Right. And like maybe the way to solve this is just by making the the walls of the bathroom stall be a whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. I think that, like the aesthetics of graffiti 
I also like moving here initially was kind of like, oh, there's a lot of graffiti around. And that's sort of like, I think it's a classic thing of like, oh, this is a bad neighborhood or like this is a, like, I, I think people associate that with like dirty places or bad places. But then after a bit, I was kind of like, oh, actually the graffiti is the coolest thing or the best thing because it's like the only thing around that's just somebody doing something because they feel like it like they're not getting paid for it it's not like a business and like every there's so much stuff you're kind of bombarded with that's just you know advertising or like businesses or whatever that you don't really think about that you're just like constantly seeing and that sort of everything and then it's like oh there's this other part of just people that are kind of doing whatever and they're putting up their tag or doing stencils or doing or like writing something i mean obviously some of it is whatever better than others but i kind of grew to really appreciate it as you know you see somebody's tag that's like oh like that they have one by my house and then there's one over here too so they must have gone here or even like different parts if you like go to hours outside of greece sometimes you can still see tags from uh, people that are in athens and they'll be like oh my gosh i can't believe that guy has also been on this random like mountain road and just like got out and on a sign did the little thing that he does in the city like you know it's it's interesting because i don't know i've always had the thought that a graffiti is is art or it's kind of like a primarily an artistic sort of interaction with with the space and you know, like basket they came up with graffiti and then but i suppose i mean there's this whole concept of like graffiti is a is I don't know, there's like a message board. It's like a forum, basically, for communication. So, I don't know. I find that kind of interesting. I don't know what to, where to go with that, but it seems cool. Uh, just to finish the thought um, that I had had earlier, the, um, I, I went on to get a job and I worked in an office, an office park where our, our company I worked at was like had one office in a building full of them and there was a shared bathroom and there was no graffiti on the bathroom walls. And I was just like, I'm going to get this party started. And I brought in like a, <laughs> a mechanical pencil and I wrote a short message on the wall. And like the next day, nobody had responded. And I was just like, what, <laughs> what's wrong with you people? Screaming into the void. Nobody loves fun. <laughs> and then like a week later, it was erased. <laughs> that reminds me of my high school. I totally forgot that in my high school, somebody was like writing stuff on the bathroom wall. And they like, my high school was, was like very chill. It was like known for being like the administration was pretty chill. It, but for this, for whatever reason, they like, they were like, we're closing the bathroom. Like no one is allowed <laughs> into this bathroom until, and they're like, we must find out. Like, and I don't even think it was anything like bad. It was just like, we will not have writing on this wall and X and Y. There was one person that did. I guess they had some huge roll of stickers that said good source of fiber. And so, those were like stuck on urinals and everything all over the school. Or <laughs> For rectal use only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sticker bombing is a whole separate concept. Yeah. Related. More mimetic, I guess. I don't know. Because it's like imagery, you know, obey, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, potential to stickers and like, I don't know. Lately, I've been thinking about the potential of uh, industrial-based glues. Like, you just start gluing stuff to walls. And and this is just, you know, just in case stuff starts getting industrially glued to walls around town. I didn't do that. But, you know, theoretically, I may have just bought some glue at a hardware store and asked, hey, will this stick to a wall and anything? And they're like, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I, it, it sounds like fun. Like, 
You could literally, because because there's glue that's made to like, you know, put bricks onto other bricks permanently. Right. So you could get a lot of. Uh, you could put your band flyers up there forever. That's yeah. I was thinking you could like laminate a piece <laughs> of paper, put like gorilla glue on the back of it. You know, and if everything is sanded right, it's like oh, you could just leave this here and. I mean, it, you could get it off, but it will be a much bigger feat. <laughs> well, the issue with that, right? Or not not an issue, but it's funny in Seattle, which where I no longer live, but I did once. There's this whole concept of band posters that are, they're like, uh, they're sort of intrinsically transient because they put them up on on street poles, right? Yeah. And they have like the guys go around with those nail guns and they stick them on and then they're layered like so many posters deep, right? Like 20, 20, 20, 30. And then eventually somebody comes up and like rips them all off and then they start like a new layer. And perhaps that's like a nationwide phenomenon, but I, I thought it was kind of cool. It's the cycle of life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like the idea that like you, uh, you just keep layering on posters and then like you can, the once it gets big <laughs> enough to be building size, you just carve a new room and live in there and that, or have your band practice in there. <laughs> You're practicing music in a in a room made of band posters, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was talking to someone about the uh, this thing called a a tell, which is like tell, which I think is true. I have to I have to look it up again. Maybe you can all fact check me on this. Uh, there's like Tel Aviv in in Israel. A, a tell is like this architectural feature, not architectural, uh, archaeological, I suppose, feature where it's like you have one city that's so fought over that like over the course of thousands of years like one city gets conquered by another one and then that city gets conquered by another city and another one and each time the city gets conquered they build on top of it so at the end you have this like city on a massive hill but the hill is actually just like every like all the preceding societies that have been like conquered <laughs> and then reconquered and like paved back over until you have this like giant mountain so i guess in a sense it's like uh a really big band poster. <laughs> Back when I'm, when BBS text files were, were the primary way I got knowledge about the world, uh, my understanding was that sweetened condensed milk was the the best band flyer glue. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a wheat paste, which is interesting because it's like the best. Yeah, the best glue apparently for putting up papers uh, or one of the good ones is just like. Yeah, it's like wheat-based glue, but apparently it's really, really good at sticking paper to bricks. Wow. You just make it yourself. And you can eat it. <laughs> it actually sounded like it sounded like a breakfast cereal. Edible glue. <laughs> wheat paste. I think raw flour like goop is 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 kind of a dystopian food, but what, you know. What would be the name of the cereal? Like glue globs? <laughs> no, it's just a, a white pouch full of. I was just thinking wheat paste, but oh yeah, <laughs> very uh, very direct. <laughs> I think you yeah you have to like matrix style like f like feed tube it in order for full effect. Right, right. Uh, what a visual. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yes, Aaron. Your topic is unphysical, physically motivated procedural content generation. Yeah. So. With procedural content, right? So, there's a lot of methods that, that one can use, you know, to generate procedural content and they come in many forms. And, uh, at you know, at one point, I attempted to analyze some of them, you know, and see if I could put them on some kind of 
space, you know, for, for how they how they differ from one another. And one of the axes that I, I kind of converged on was whether it's sort of a high level or a low level algorithm. And you know, what we're really looking for here is 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 emergence. You know, like given given some algorithm, um, you know, some some simple algorithm, right? Is it greater than the sum of its parts? And and if it is, kind of how much bang for our buck are we getting out of the algorithm, right? Right. And so like uh, like one common, I suppose, like case study or people like really like to 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 use the PCG is terrain generation, right? It's sort of like well well studied. You know, there's papers in SIGGRAPH and game devs have their own methods and, and all this stuff. And I think it's a good example because there's also two algorithms uh, that I would sort of consider one to be high level and one to be low level. And the high level algorithm is kind of like it's like everyone's first introduction to terrain generation, right? And that's just sort of a noise function, right? Right. And that can be that can be whatever it is. Maybe it's FBM, right? You know, maybe it's just uh, like a yeah, Perlin just, noise signal. You generate some Perlin noise and then you pick like an elevation for where the water is. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You have Tron. Uh, yeah. And then immediately, a lot of people are, are sort of very pleased with the result, right? They're like, oh my gosh, right? Like rolling hills. FBM like really looks like mountains, right? Because it's a fractal pattern. So you really get that mountain feel and you look at it, you know, you're like, this is great, right? But then ultimately you sort of fall into the, you know, kind of the perennial PCG trap, right? It's it's sort of the, okay, I've seen my hundredth mountain and it's exactly the same as the like N minus one mountain, right? And this is just kind of like a clear failure of the algorithm to generate a sufficiently interesting emergent space. Yeah. And so if we if we consider that we're like okay so like what what would be a low level algorithm in this in this in this context and one that you see uh, people use is a physically motivated algorithm although I don't even know if I call it an algorithm it's just I mean it's a procedure right uh, is tectonic plate simulation right oh yeah and yeah yeah and at first this seems kind of complicated right. Um, but you know it's it's conceptually pretty simple, and you can you can simplify the process, right? And you get some plates, and they rub against each other, and you know this generates ridge lines, and mountains kind of form on the ridge lines. And immediately, you just sort of get this this richness, right? This richness that you don't quite get from a noise function. And so I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at that. I'm like, okay, right? So if the noise function is high level, right? You know, you kind of you you input these values to the to the function. Uh, and you, you kind of get this this value back and a lot of it is kind of a, it's, it's very much a black box. And the lower level one is more physically motivated, um, you know, because it's based off of some physical concept that we can point our fingers at, right? There's like, okay, here's some, here's some plates and they hit each other and, you know, they produce something. So, you know, and there's, there's various uh, iterations on this and some good, good looking island generation algorithms out there. And, and I would almost call them like entire programs, right? Because there's a lot of sort of different layers of stuff that goes into it. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, that's cool. So physical, you know, physically motivated stuff, this is this is good, right? And some papers, you know, a lot of them are like, okay, we start with river generation and from there we come up with mountains and, and this sort of thing. And I was like, okay, and this is kind of the 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 topic was like, what would it look like if you had a process like this, right? Like a physically motivated process, a low level process, but it's not actually physically motivated <laughs> so which i mean like like it doesn't actually come from the real world right and uh if that doesn't make sense i can i can clarify a little bit do you mean like the the mendel bulb right i'm not super familiar with that uh it's it's um 
basically a 3D extrapolation of the Mandelbrot set. Okay. I'm I'm going to Google everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's a um a really common easy way to get interesting 3D terrain that is kind of surrealistic and you can fly a camera through it and it looks alien and strange. I see. Right. And I and I suppose the question is at least in this framework, you know, which may or may not be good is like is that something that somebody just kind of they're like, "Okay, here's a function. Let me see what it does." Oh, this looks pretty alien, right? Why is that? Could you could you build some kind of lower level framework, you know, some sort of rationale, right? Because that's kind of what plate tectonics are. They're a rationale for mountains. So what you want right. is like a rationale for surreal terrain, and that, that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at. Maybe it's like, what would that look like? And you kind of have to do a little bit of world building, perhaps. Right, right. A w- world building in the sense of like not just you know cultures, but also what does the physics of planets look like in this alternate dimension? Yeah, for sure. It's sort of like uh, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to invent the universe except you're inventing another universe and it's not apple pie. It's like um, a alien form of uh, a planetary body or something. Yeah. it's And it's hard. Like this is one of those things where like you can come up with this idea and implement it and have no intuition whatsoever for whether you... <laughs> whether you got it right it's one of those problems where like you have something in mind and you can work for a while and like at no point will you really like ever be able to be sure that say you, you um that you actually hit your target all you can say is whether it looks interesting isn't that true for fantasy in general i mean perhaps it's not i, I guess i just wonder like when tolkien was creating you know his his universe no, I'm, I'm speaking specifically in terms of implementing this algorithm. Oh, I see. Uh, so, it's not verifiable is, is your point? Like, there's no way to validate it? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, right, like if you, if you can validate it, then it's invalid, right? Is that because if it's unphysically motivated, then the only, it's like you need to be a fourth dimensional extraterrestrial in order to understand, like, if it's, if it's taking the correct inspiration or maybe maybe i'm going a level too far (laughs) well what i just mean is that like you can't if you know if you if you implement plate tectonics you know what you're supposed to it's supposed to look like it's supposed to look like canyons and mountains and and continents but if you implement this new form of, of of a way to create the surface of a planet you won't have any intuition for what the result should look like well sure but I suppose it's like there's a distance metric, like say for example you implemented plate tectonics, but it was just it was slightly not plate tectonics. And this is interesting because you also just see this in games in general. Like all physics engines are not really physical; they're just kind of physical, and some of them push this more than others. And so if we think about that, like taking a small step from from the reality, and this is now considered you know surreal in a sense. Uh, you know, how far could you go? Like, you don't necessarily have to sort of take the leap to this unexplored space, but you could kind of move further and further and kind of keep your wits about you, perhaps, and then end up on something where, I don't know, I feel like there there should be a way to at least describe the algorithm of plate tectonics and then describe an analogous algorithm that has nothing to do with with mountains, but still satisfies all the same or has all the same properties or something. Yeah, that's interesting. 
I really want like an endless terrain generator that has some incredibly advanced system of macros that I know nothing about, but I just get a big knob, like a huge knob <laughs> that's like one, one side is earth and the other end is like the the ever known perplexing right. void and I can just sort of slowly on, fade between earth. them and see like, ah, cool. Yeah, that's fun. I, I, with Tolkien, I, I guess I was just curious and it stuck in my head. Like, did he know what he was looking for, you know, when he was, he was innovating in that sense? I mean, I'm not a Tolkien scholar, so I don't... Was, was Tolkien innovating in terms of like when he, in terms of cartography? Uh, that's a good point, but I, I feel like these things are isomorphic. Like, you can also sort of think about what is a low-level uh, way of generating language or what was a, what is a low-level way of, sure. of, you know, generating sort of, I don't know, biology or something. And, and I think what Tolkien was a, primarily a linguist, right? So, he had a lot more to add in the, in the language department. And I just, I'm kind of curious if, if he kind of had a niche, he was like, oh, I got to do this. Like, I, I need to revolutionize this form of surrealist language, which we now sort of see firmly kind of in its own genre. Or, or if he was like, no, my work is cut out for me. Like the, the path is set, you know, because I know he drew off of some historical uh, fable or, or mythology, like fairies, elves. I mean, these things like they existed in a sense prior to his kind of high fantasy definition of them. In terms of like terrain, I feel like most of our sci-fi and fantasy references are are actually like like so like on the in the earth non-earth dial we're like one click out of ten thousand up from earth it's like it's a really big <laughs> yeah, yeah. forest and there's lots of trees or you know like it's big a trees. desert yeah and it's like look there's like big animals that it's not a cow it's got two heads you know but like um right right and specifically like looking at fantasy maps it's always like oh the cities are near the river it's always yeah yeah based on actual earth cartography because that's what looks natural to us yeah one of the interesting kind of things in terms of quote unquote terrain which doesn't really have to do with terrain uh for me was like i was re-watching the other day that scene from uh interstellar where they go to Miller's planet, which is, this isn't even like science fiction. It's just science, I guess, theoretically. But it's like that planet, spoilers for Interstellar, uh, everybody. It's like that planet where they go to and on the planet, it's regular time. But because of relativity, they come out and like their whole, like their families have all been sending them messages for like 25 years. Uh, it's, it's orbiting a black hole. Yeah, yeah. So, the time is like stretched I thought that was really fascinating and I think that's like a a cool thing of like it's a location and it's a pretty normal location but there's this like dread that is very location based where it's like you go to this place and there is this like weird creepy thing about it that has nothing to do with the actual like physical land. It's like oh you're also <laughs> entering this other like time dimension where your life will be going by super fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like being strapped into the machine and the Princess Bride. Spoilers for the Princess Bride. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have not seen the Princess Bride, which is oh my a, gosh. a card a cardinal sin. No, it's fine. I've had I think I know it's one of those movies where I know every reference already, but I just haven't sat down and watched the whole thing. I kid you not, like my plan for today was to watch that film after this <laughs> for the first time <laughs> not for the first time no for my roommate's first time so i think that was the oh wow yeah 
don't don't play them this podcast before right. they watch it. <laughs> there's a great uh, there's this guy on YouTube once that talks about uh, renting when he was a, like a kid. They rented a, like a double feature, and the first movie was Fifty First Dates, and the second movie was Sixth Sense. And in Fifty First Dates, they, as a joke, spoil like massively spoil Sixth Sense, <laughs> <laughs> just like literally, wow. like like half an hour away from watching the movie like so close <laughs> it's a topic of its own yeah you could do the same thing with uh the frog fractions hat dlc and any other media <laughs> <laughs> wait that it spoils frog fractions or that frog fractions spoils it the frog yeah frog fractions has uh the hat dlc has a um a mini game where the failure state is you get shown a pop culture spoiler oh wow <laughs> I had to check this out. That, that's your punishment for getting hit by uh, one of the attacks. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> I tried to make it pretty exhaustive. Like it starts, it, it shows you, it shows in chronological order. So, like it starts off with like the, the Trojan forces full of warriors. <laughs> right, right, right. Really, really going back. <laughs> well, all right. So, I'll just have to remind me to uh, consume all media before playing that. Or, yeah. After like 15 or 20, it's getting into modern day and then another 10 and it's spoiling the end of the game you're playing. <laughs> wow, that's very, that's great. I don't know why, but this reminds me of that Stanley Parable achievement. It's it's like, don't play the game for six years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's finally gettable. <laughs> Is it like the thing where um, people will show job calls where it will be like you must have 10 years of you know c sharp or something and it's like c sharp was invented eight years ago <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> right yeah we, we want to hire liars it's it was exactly. literally just like how many years should they have a, a lot that, that's how good programmers have pro program a lot so we need someone who programmed right. for many years it's like okay many many <laughs> are we ready for another topic yeah. Yes. Uh, so, my topic is the inventor of Nun Pizza with Left Beef went on to create Young Sheldon. This is... Yeah, we're not going to get past this one. I think this is the rest of the show. <laughs> because <laughs> what? <laughs> so, for those who don't know, Nun Pizza with Left Beef was an image which was someone who had went to the Domino's website and filled out a form for what kind of pizza they wanted and put none for almost everything, including cheese and sauce, <laughs> and then with beef on the left side. And then there was a photo of the resulting pizza, which was just like a disc of plain dough <laughs> with like meatballs scattered around the like scattered around the box. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at the image again and it does not get old. So I have to I have to admit that I've actually done this before and uh Perhaps the double admittance is that I, I wasn't even aware of the meme, but I mean, I live in New York City, right? It's, it's a crime to order from Domino's, but I did, you know, many years ago uh, and I regret it. But, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I liked the Domino's garlic bread because it just has that sort of, it, it's, it's like a drug. I mean, the, whatever they inject <laughs> that, that smell of it, right? It's just, you know, it's, it's pheromones. I don't know. And so, I was wondering, can I, can I hack the garlic bread? You know, can I just get some garlic bread by ordering a pizza with nothing on it? 
<laughs> and just some garlic, right? And and I did that, and it was it was disgusting. Like I just, <laughs> it was just it was just a disc, and I think they they knew the game, you know. So so they they only put garlic on the crust or something, and I, I don't know. It was it was pretty <laughs> oh, so bad. They, they were trying to foil your plan. <laughs> they thwarted you. You should have asked for garlic on the side so you could put it on yourself. Right, right, right. And that's what I do now. Wait, so what does this have to do with, with young Sheldon? I really need to... <laughs> I need... I'm sorry if that's spoiled. Uh, so, okay, so if you go to the Stephen Molaro's Wikipedia page, it, it says that he was the inventor of Nun Pizza with Left Beef and there's an article it links to Nun Pizza with Left Beef 10 years later, uh, which is itself a delightful headline. But then also like his TV credits, starting with the Amanda Show. Oh my God! Like he worked on iCarly, and was a, a producer and writer on The Big Bang Theory, and then was a co-creator of Young Sheldon. Oh my God, that's insane! Also, I just need to say, I have not thought about the Amanda Show in so long. Bringing the Dancing Lobsters, <laughs> an amazing show. But yeah, Young Sheldon, probably one of the most disliked concepts for a show of all time, I'm going to guess. That seems right. Has anybody actually seen an episode here? Uh, I have not and I've never heard of the show. I've only seen clips from Big Bang Theory where people were making fun of it, which was probably not like, <laughs> I feel like I've only seen one side of the story. Maybe there are also funny parts. I'm I I cannot believe that I'm truly about to admit this in a public medium uh but I sometimes watch the Big Bang Theory not like I I swear I don't do it that much God. Uh, but like I don't know it's not on cable ironically Jonah <laughs> Yes like uh, well no it's like it's like a hate watch but it's really a real watch I don't know I I like it, it's on it was always on cable when I was growing up so it's like the show that you just watch passively it is as bad as people make fun of it for. Like, the writing is horrible. I guess the acting is fine. But then also, like, my roommate, my old roommate here was... was I, I Like, Greeks really like the Big Bang Theory. Everyone's like, the Big Bang Theory is great. Uh, and by everybody, I mean, like, three people that yeah, I know. They find out you're a nerd and they're like, oh, I know what your favorite show is. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And it's like, I don't know. But, and then, oh, so so to explain for Aaron and, and also those of, of you... Uh, lucky enough to viewers. not know this yeah so <laughs> do you, are you familiar with sheldon from the big bang theory i am yes uh, i know i know that he's a character oh okay jim's a, oh my god i can't believe i'm the big bang theory scholar of this group and, and, and it's jim's <laughs> oh topic too god. Wow, this is, oh gosh wow. all right guys l let me whip out the whiteboard you're, here and the... you're gonna have to run you're gonna have to run this topic from now on <laughs> all right guys so so, uh, basically, the way that the Big Bang Theory operates, <laughs> it's a sitcom and each character is like the most one-dimensional, uniformed stereotype of their group that you could imagine. Like, there's a, a Wallowitz who's like a stereotypical Jewish nerd. There's like stereotypical Indian guy nerd. And they're all like, this isn't me like making it. It's just like, if you watch the show, that's literally every joke is like, it's funny because this person is X thing. Uh, Sheldon's is like, I mean, it's basically that he is like, like uh, he just like has Asperger's, I guess, basically. Like I, they don't say that in the show, but that's just right. like pretty much 
the 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 joke <laughs> which i mean i don't know this is already sounding questionable yeah, yeah i don't like like i don't know I, I i won't speak for any communities i'm i'm kind of curious actually what different like communities feel about the representation of of sheldon cooper because he's kind of like a lovable character but all the jokes are about how like he doesn't understand social cues he has this very sort of like esoteric way of life that's super uh based on like technical thinking and he like doesn't yeah he just like is very much outside of like normal social life they all are like nuclear physicists or something i don't remember anyway this is way too much exposition for 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 big bang theory but yeah so basically they've made a spin-off show that's called young sheldon and it's just sheldon as a kid um and he wears a bow tie but sheldon is like for for hate watchers of the show Sheldon is one of the most probably annoying characters because it's like, it, it's just, it's not a particularly well-written show. And I cannot believe <laughs> that that's the nun pizza left beef guy. That's crazy. All right. So, I, one thing that I've always wondered and never have been able to figure out is why it's, what the name means. Big Bang Bang Theory? Is it just like, here's a science reference? Is that the whole thing? I don't know. That's a good question because the the intro theme song is like, oh, it's history and it's the Big Bang and it's the Big Bang Theory. I don't know if there's some <laughs> like fifth grade level reference to them like not having sex because they're nerds or something. Like there is a lot in the show about how, oh, the other character is their like neighbor who's like a typical kind of like it's a ditzy hot girl who like the nerds talk to oh, and stuff. Awful. Yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, there's like, there's like slightly more depth than you would imagine, but like, according to Wikipedia, she eventually marries the protagonist. Wow. That, I, I'm sure that spoiled somebody's life. <laughs> I that good. Yeah. Good. Go outside and stop watching big bang theory. There's almost certainly a listener that, you know, is, is the big bang theory's biggest fan. Ed. You know, we're currently, yeah. and we live, yeah. we live for their pain. <laughs> I, well, just we'll never know. We'll never know what the name means. I I feel like I it's in the back of my mind that it's a pun that there's a there's a secondary. I mean, I guess in order for it to be a pun, there has to be Double a second entendre. thing, or else it's just a word. That's what I always assume because, like, I'm kind of pun blind. <laughs> Your oh, pun, pun I feel that. And that's that's also a good topic. Pun <laughs> <laughs> <Pun> blindedness. <laughs> for for a while I was on a podcast with three other people who loved puns, and occasionally they would just go off for minutes on end, and I would just be like, I have no idea what any of you are saying. You've been out punned. There was one where like they were joking about like if if Rob Zombie died and came back as a supernatural creature, what kind of creature would he be? And they were like, hmm, a ghoul or a wraith or a ghost. And like three days later, I was like, oh, I understand why they were doing that. <laughs> why was it? I, I thought I was pun literate, but maybe this is my... <laughs> Uh, it was because uh, he's he's got zombie in the name. And he comes back as a, as a ghoul. And zombie is a, as, as an undead creature. That was the joke. <laughs> okay, I, I guess I got it then. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I considered myself, I, I think I'm relatively pun or pun adjacent literate. I used to do this thing with my friends where like you'd see a sign and you 
kind of like flip it around. It'd be like downtown hardware and you turn to the like you you see the sign while you're driving and you turn to them and be like, hey, have you been to, you know, UpCity software lately or something? And they're like, what? And then you see like in the somewhere where you are, there's a sign that's like the opposite of what you said. So, you, you reverse each word in the name of something and then they have to sort of like guess. It's much less formal than I'm making. It's just like this dumb thing we used to do. I thought this was going to be like a, a what's up dog kind of a thing. <laughs> so it's, it's a, one level of, of pun connoisseurship above what's up dog. If you were in the pun <laughs> society, you'd... Right. Is that like syntactic ambiguity? It's like what's up dog versus what's up dog? Yes, but up dog is not a thing, so... <laughs> <laughs> in, in our universe, I mean, perhaps in an adjacent surreal universe, <laughs> there's a terrain that looks like an updog. <laughs> so I'm still searching. I, I searched Google for why is it called the Big Bang Theory? And it's all about the science concept. Oh, right. I, th- I think there's, I think nobody knows the answer to this question. Or if they do, like, it's never going to be knowable because. There's no way to, to, to find the answer. Well, maybe what you have to do is, oh, just order a pizza with, with no pizza, you know, and beef. And this is the, this is the communion between, I don't know, between, <laughs> between, between Big Bang Theory. About knowledge about the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> you, they come yeah, in like yeah. a robe and they cart you off in a van to the Big Bang Theory uh, room. There, there's a programming language called... Messages uh, in the meatballs. I, I feel like I mentioned, I'm, I'm now living in constant fear on, as episode two on Topic Lords that I'm just going to say something that I've already said because I do that in my real life constantly. Oh my God. You you haven't been on 50 however many episodes either. <laughs> oh yeah, Jim. Oh, oh right, man. right, I'm right. Really, I'm yeah, really Jim, Jim is the one. <laughs> preaching yeah. to the choir here. Um, but there's a programming language called uh, Max MSP or it's just called Max uh, for sure. And, and like just everybody... Uh, who uses Max is constantly frustrated by trying to search something because you'd be like, Max number generation. And it's like maximum number generation. You're like, well, not that Max. Max, you know, or like Max, you know, signal flow or like Max tools. And it's like, it's all just like different weird names and stuff. Oh, this is a common problem. This is like when I was trying to find out the volume of a parrot. (laughs) Uh, I was like Googling for parrot volume and it was just like my... Like Yahoo answers, my parrot is too loud. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Why didn't you just get a a dead parrot and, you know, a uh, thing of water? I, I guess I could have. All right. So, I've given up on Googling why it's called the Big Bang Theory and instead I'm trying to find out Chuck Lorre's email address so that I can just ask him. <laughs> <laughs> that seems viable. Chuck Lorre. He, what, what else? He made like a bunch of stuff, right? He's like the king of... Apparently, he co-created Young Sheldon. <laughs> Whoa, that's my favorite show. I can't believe you'd bring it up. <laughs> Whoa, what if I, I looked up Chuck Lore and this is a different Chuck Lore and it's like there's like no descriptions and then there's just a bunch of links in Arabic. Oh, that's that's I think that's a different Chuck Lore. I think so. <laughs> uh, apparently, apparently he wrote for Two and a Half Men. Yep. Ah, another one of the... Well, that's good. I'm I'm not a two and a half men fan either. You try Lori dot Chuck at AOL. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's 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 actually the way to do this is just email Chuck Lori at Gmail and just assume it's gonna be the right guy. You just have to write a script that email that starts at A. 
a at gmail.com and then a b oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna war dial this thing all right are you are you ready for another topic yes yeah this is the write-in jesse asks hobo code and i googled hobo code and apparently this is this is a series of symbols that hobos would uh write on the walls to uh indicate that uh, in- indicate things to other hobos that regular people wouldn't understand. Ah, oh, right. I've heard about this. It's like this house, they will give you some food. Dangerous drinking water. Or don't talk to this person, you know. Those you just write on the person's face. Right. <laughs> Big X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, nowadays you just review them on Yelp. <laughs> right. The modern hobo code. Yeah. There's a great book uh, called The Wander Society by Carrie Smith um, about urban and I think mostly nature wandering, but she describes this like underground secret society that has to do with uh, wandering in the woods. It's way less creepy and much more positive and peaceful than than I'm making it sound right now. But one of the things that she sort (laughs) of invents in the book is like, I don't know if she invents them or if they're existing, but they're like symbols about made for people that are wandering uh, paths or wandering uh, in different places. So, like, oh, go here. I don't know. It really reminds me of that. And I just needed to plug uh, that book. Yeah. One of them looks like a duck and it says free telephone. (laughs) I don't know why they can't. (laughs) I guess there's no committee. I mean, when was the Hobo Code active? Uh, Let's see if I can find... uh... Welcome to Google the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I, I get the impression it was the mid-20th century, but I don't actually see any years in this article. Yeah, I recently learned the word for the kind of the, the, the canonical hobo object. It's it's sort of the bandana at the end of the stick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's called a bindle. Ah, right, right, right. A bindle. That makes sense. Is our, I, I think all, I feel like also you're not supposed to say hobo anymore. Is that like a... A rude term now i just i feel like i'll put it out there we can keep saying hobo but we but uh maybe that's i hadn't i hadn't heard that i think a hobo is just is uh is just a traveler like someone who ah, okay maybe i'm mixing it up maybe i'm mixing it up with something else yeah i don't know i mean i have a very fantastical sort of image of what a hobo is it's kind of right that like mid-century you know catching a ride on the box car sitting around the, the fire with your I don't know, lead mug that you're drinking chili out of. Right. You know, this is the concept, right? Or peanuts, you know, like the Snoopy. Snoopy has his bindle and he's he's traveling America. Remember all those old Snoopy um, Snoopy full full feature films? I don't know if anyone's seen those. I found an amazing chart that, that we now is, is going to derail this topic, which is just different phrases. Like it's like hobo slang and they're all amazing. Hit hit us hit us with the good stuff. But Chuck a dummy is pretending to faint, which I don't. There, there's not even that many. Uh, honey dipping is working with a shovel in the sewer. Uh, honey dipping. Wait, Chuck a dummy. That's that's a verb, right? It's like I'm gonna Chuck a dummy. Yeah, yeah. Like, which is like know, pretending. I'll to start faint. using that. Oh, I'm Chuck a dummy. <laughs> How often do you need to pretend to faint? <laughs> it's it's rhythmic. I don't. I just want to say it. Chuck a dummy. Chuck a dummy. There's Angelina, which is a young, inexperienced child. Oh, a gump. Gump is a chicken. I think honey dipping is probably the best one. 
mulligan stew <laughs> type of community stew created by several hobos combining water with whatever food they have. Or I would make mulligan stew. That sounds good. A gump. I'm still, I'm still stuck on gump. I'm just curious if that has any relationship to Bubba Gump. Ah, uh, yeah. I wonder gump. What a weird word. A toke blanket is drinking alcohol to stay warm. Ah. <laughs> uh. And a yeg is a professional, a traveling professional thief or burglar. Oh, it sounds German, you know, Jaeger. Oh, it does kind of sound German. Wow, there's all this thing about, we should just, there should just be, all right, Jim, I'm officially making a new podcast that's just reading aloud Wikipedia articles and going, huh, that's interesting. I feel like this one is already that. <laughs> only, only like 50% of the time. And and it's always interesting Wikipedia articles. So, did you ever listen to Train Hot Dog? Did you know about that one? Uh, what <laughs> Train Hot Dog? Train Hot Dog was a podcast that I would do um, on the, on Bart. Oh wow! I would, I'd, be, I'd be writing. <laughs> I'd be writing the train around, and I would pick a topic, and I would just look it up on the internet and read the read what I found into my phone microphone. And the episodes were like twenty minutes long, and you would have to really strained to hear what I was saying. But <laughs> like something like 50 people regularly listen to this show just because wow. like they, they, they thought my commentary was interesting. I'm, I'm oh, so glad awesome. that those people now have topic Lords instead, <laughs> but I should, um, I should create an alternate feed of topic Lords where I dub train noises over everything. <laughs> <laughs> just for the aesthetic. Yeah. I've been keeping a, like a daily audio log for about a month now and I'm hoping to, to do it at least yeah. for a full year. And yesterday I did it on uh, the bus and I was <laughs> getting like quieter and quieter as I was talking because there's a certain window where you can get away with people thinking that you're recording a voice message. I, I think this is also something that's way more common in <laughs> everywhere except America, which is like people constantly talk into their phones especially instead of texting. Yeah, especially Asia. Um, but yeah, like people just like talk into their phones instead of writing. But then after about 30 seconds, I think you can see people around you realize that you're that you're making a, a long <laughs> like personal conversation to yourself about your right. day like as if it's like star date you know 261 or whatever and then it's just like okay well uh anyway bye <laughs> that was always the the awkward thing when i was i'm recording this podcast and then someone sits down next to me the only time anybody ever got up and like after after i was talking for a while and like moved to another seat was the one time where um uh, one of my searches ended up, I got an, a, a long error message with like a big like programming traceback where it had like the, the entire stack of the the program that had crashed and I just started reading that. <laughs> and it was just like, this is a good like 10 minutes of that episode is me reading like uh, reading function names. <laughs> if it was Bay Area, it was probably just a programmer that totally understood everything and was too stressed out to keep listening. <laughs> Uh, I gotta get enough of this at work. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, just commenting on that. It, the whole context of the show is that it takes place on the BART. And so I think it's sort of critical that that is saliently, I don't know, part of it. You know, it's like the fact that someone sits down, this is, th this is like part of your message, right? It's yeah, well, I should, be, I should have interviewed them. 
Right, right, right. That'd be great. Well, yeah, like or like an episode where you're carried off in handcuffs and like the whole thing is caught on tape and it's, it, it ends, it like cuts. <laughs> Avenge me. Right. You hit upload with your toe or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's so real. <laughs> this was also coinciding with... Uh, with the the part of my life where everything I was doing was scrutinized because it was probably part of the ARG. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so probably they wouldn't be like they wouldn't realize that I actually had been arrested. They'd be like, "Oh, that uh, Jim, what a character! He's right. <laughs> <laughs> dropping more lore clues." When you die, we'll we'll find like an envelope that's like secretly everything was part of the ARG and like <laughs> that podcast was part of the ARG. It's all part of the ARG. Like the first ARG was just like a hint. <laughs> yep. You, you see Jim's body and there's like that 80s cross fade into like it just it just fades away, Matt. Like it just fades away and then it's replaced by a frog. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Sounds real. Sounds like something that's definitely going to happen. It's just an RG at that point. Right. Rock Fractions 3. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, Aaron, your topic is designing a game around semantic, semantic prime theory. Yeah. So, like, semantic prime theory is just pretty interesting in general. And the concept is, uh, is that there's sort of this theoretical language that's common to all natural languages. And I stress natural because that'll be important later, i.e., you know, human languages, right? And, you know, and it's kind of like this this optimal minimal subset of all languages. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we talk about subset, we're primarily talking about lexicon, so vocabulary. Um, and there's also like related theory about grammar, but the vocabulary is kind of more interesting because sort of the idea is, you know, there's a certain number of words that you know, theoretically can can be used to say everything that a natural language can express, which I think by itself is a pretty, pretty mind-blowing concept, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the obvious next question is, you know, how many, how many are there? This, this theory is primarily pushed forward by um, uh, Anna Viersbysha and also Cliff Goddard. And so, I think she spent like three decades on this research. And she started out with 14, which is an incredibly small number, right? Uh, yeah. And now they're they're up to sixty five, which is still an incredibly small number. So I think that's pretty cool. Is the idea here that there are sixty five atomic concepts that you need to express an idea? Yeah, I, it depends on how you define idea. I suppose I would say anything that you can express in a given natural language. Right. This is in a sense, it's almost like a vector space, like you know, what is the space of all the things you can say in a given language? And so, the idea of like the natural semantic meta language is it's it's like the orthogonal basis of that space, right? It's, you know, it's like, what is the minimum number of words we need to express anything? And yeah, I, I suppose you could, you could say, yeah, like any idea. It's interesting, um, like this year I've been learning Greek, so thinking a lot about language more than usual and it's interesting both like Greek gets rid of a bunch of stuff that you think you need from English, but you don't. Like there's no progressive tense. You just say like if you in English, if you wanted to say like, you know, I, I am going to the store, you just say like, I go to store. 
or like I and, and there's no infinitives either. So you just say like I want if you'd be like I want you to go, you just say I want you go. And like it's totally fine. Like you don't need any of the middle things. The trade-off is that there's a whole bunch of genders and cases and stuff that are way more complicated and convoluted. Uh, but anyway, I think also Greek is particularly interesting because culturally there's all these things about how like like the three words for love and stuff and that this creates a different understanding. It's like that thing where uh, th- there's all there's all different versions of it. Oh, you know, in Russian there's like the light blue and the dark blue or something, right? Like th- th- we, we like to as a sort of uh, Pinterest-y like soundbite of uh, knowledge be like, oh, like people in this other language have a completely different understanding of X, Y, and Z because of the way that the language is formed. But I've seen here that the culture also is like a huge driver. Like to me, this is kind of a guess, but I feel like uh, Western culture has affected more like how people talk about like the three types of uh, relationship or love or something more so than like they just kind of like the words form to the culture more so than they do the other way around from from what I've seen. But I think that's been interesting because we like to kind of romanticize like, oh, there's this word that's totally untranslatable. And to me, the untranslatable words are more like uh, like functional words that I find really interesting rather than like these sort of expressive words. It's like words that provide the function of a whole English sentence in one word. Uh, those are nice. <laughs> <laughs> like there's one that's just like, could you please expound upon that previous point a bit? In, in like a very non-condescending way, which I find really hard to do to say in English, but in Greek, there's just like, that's a word. That does sound nice. That's, that's better than when like a toddler asks you why over and over again. <laughs> it's sort of like that. <laughs> which, by the way, Winston still is not doing that. Still like, I gotta, I gotta shape up, buddy. I'm looking forward to, to getting into <laughs> these deep philosophical conversations and he's just not holding up his end of the bargain. When are you going to start talking about like quarks and stuff at like level 10 of, of why? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, also, I'll also just have to say, I don't know sometimes. Right. That's, I mean, that's the secret. <laughs> that, that's the big secret, right? It's like, you're just allowed to be like, yeah, I have no idea. Right. You know, I'm, I'm kind of attracted to the idea of, of, of minimal languages, right? I mean, we always talk about you know, how you can express nuance to your point, Jonah, uh, you know, this specific word, right? This has a, this has a color or, or a flavor. And, and I sort of associate that with, with kind of an artistic drive, you know, and in, in SM theory, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's formal, right? It's about formal semantics. And so, it does certainly does not propose that all languages are the same, but just that they can be reduced to these isomorphic subsets, right? And that all like layers of nuance can sort of be expressed iteratively using these, you know, sort of semantic primes. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people sort of value this sort of thing, right? Something that's easily expressible. It's good for for connecting people and communities, uh, right? But perhaps, you know, this sort of lack of ambiguity isn't, isn't, isn't as good for someone who, who wants to live in the ambiguity, you know, for example, for artistic purposes. And that's what I think people like about culture and, and flavor of different, different societies. So, you always get that, right? With like bilingual and trilingual people oh, if I could only express this, right? Either they just don't know the equivalent like nuanced word, right? Or it really is something, right? It just has this flavor that you you don't have. But 
with semantic primes, you know, <laughs> you can you can express anything. Right? <laughs> I like to go fast. <laughs> I like to go very very fast. <laughs> That's my poem. <laughs> oh, but you were also going to tie this into game design. Sure. Well, I, I, and this is why in the beginning I sort of emphasized the word natural, right? Because it's it's in the title, natural semantic meta language. This is sort of the name of the theory. And uh, and I suppose I didn't actually didn't think about this earlier, but this sort of harks back to the earlier topic a little bit, which is uh, this isn't just a theory, right? There's also some empirical evidence to show this. Um, uh, Beersbisha and and others have done cross linguistic studies uh, that show that a lot of these words, right? They they actually are present, sort of indefinable words in in all languages. And so obviously, right? I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, okay, this is cool. But what about artificial languages? You know, like what about artificial worlds? And what's funny is that Wiersbisha, she actually like touches on this point in one of her books. And I, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head which what she says, but she says, yes, right. You know, this, this sort of the, this set of words, right. This is firmly based on like a semantic substrate that is, is our natural world. And if you're somebody who creates artificial languages, which I was surprised because this book is from the 90s. I, I don't know. I guess Klingon also, right? <laughs> so, I, I suppose people have been conlinking for quite some time now. But yeah. um, she's like, yeah, if you're doing that, um, then you, you have a different semantic substrate. And when I was working on uh, the coup game, I very early on stole this whole theory. Uh, and I, I like also without really reading into it very deeply. And I, I kind of caught up to it later and sort of grew to appreciate that comment that she made because in the in the coup world right it's it's a similar concept you have these there's like a different semantic substrate but it's like a it's a video game substrate right it's like a it's a virtual substrate like the the semantics that you have in a video game are things you can do like move from a tile to a different tile or you know consume an item i don't know or free a pointer i don't <laughs> i don't know so it's it's like this is like the the thing that i find kind of interesting about i think like one of the really interesting things in the whole for for the whole topic in general is like there's this kind of back of the mind assumption uh, that developed or nuclear or individual language whatever that like language uh, is the this sort of default or or perfect or end all communicative device and I think it's also interesting to think about how if you if you subscribe to sort of like this postmodern theory stuff it's like oh language isn't really all that great at describing you know life as we experience it and i think uh i don't know like games to me are also sort of an alternative to language in terms of how we uh understand things I, that's a that's a bit off of a uh, topic but i don't know that's just a thought i was having while you were saying that like there's also this sort of um like speaking through uh, the design and then you could even speak through the design of the language of the game and then you <laughs> wrap all the way very, very back meta. around or something. Yeah. I, I always liked the the idea of using systems to express an idea at the very least because they're much more persuasive in that at some level a system has to actually function. So, there has to be some basic level of truth to the idea or it just doesn't work at all. Right, right. That's interesting. It can't just yeah, be theoretical. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. Well, it's practical fundamentally, right? 
it's yes yeah. yeah it's something that you have you have manifested like and, no matter how persuasively yeah. you write if the system doesn't work the system doesn't work i mean i don't want to blow this out of proportion but like what do we define as functional i mean like computation is kind of uh right it's a basis for what we see as being true i suppose logical I'm really out of my depth here, but like, I, I guess what I'm saying is there's kind of a formality to writing as well. For example, there's a set of rules that you can follow. I suppose your, your point is that you can't really break the rules in a computer. There's no real fundamental way to, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is maybe. Yeah, I, so when I think of like the rules of writing, I think of like, well, you, the letters have to be letters or. Right, right. Or like you're, there's not going to be any meaning into what you're what you're writing, or it's not even writing at all. Uh, so in, in that respect, like it is it is similar. But yeah, when I say a system has to function, so like for example, like I, I, it's hard for me to figure out how to formalize this. Uh, but for example, there was a um, a flash game. I forget the name of it. Uh, where the idea is that you are you're you're sending in drone strikes into the Middle East to kill terrorists. And every time you uh, hit like a bystander, all the people who see that bystander get hit themselves become terrorists. And I feel like that's a very uh, effective way to express this idea that this is a kind of a self-feeding system where uh, the fighting fighting the war on terror is itself creating more terrorists. Whether or not that's actually true and that actually maps to a real world cultural phenomenon, you can see the loop there in happening in, on the screen in front of you and it's happening in, in like a, a system that someone built. Right. Right. I think one of the famous examples of this is, uh, I think Jonah actually, uh, I feel like you also mentioned this recently. It's the... Uh, uh, we'll have to we'll have to edit this because I don't remember what it is called, but it's it's sort of the um, oh what is her name? She did math videos. Uh, You're talking about Vihart. Vihart, yeah, Vihart, and insert insert other person, insert collaborator, and they have that that game about racial segregation. I don't think I mentioned this. It doesn't sound familiar. Parable of the Polygons. Yeah, you guys are aware of this. I am not. Nikki Case Vihart. Parable of the polygons. It's it's just very similar to what to what Jim was just describing. And then I, I think the other game I thought of is that that tabletop game uh, about the the Holocaust. I, I think also like Papers Please is a is a commonly cited one in terms of mechanics and story being linked. Yeah, I, I feel like Nikki Case has kind of I don't know if this is literally a career, but has kind of made a career out of that sort of uh, persuasive systems. Right. I was saying to Aaron uh, the other week, like I found Celeste actually, even though it's got pretty much the most bog standard sort of large level system uh, ideas. uh, To me, that was very much a game in, in this category because the story is just about overcoming difficulty with persistence and the game is extremely difficult like on a super simple level it's just like oh yeah like she's climbing the mountain and it's really hard and there's pitfalls and it's like you have to keep doing it over and over and then eventually you you get through and it's like that's the exact i'm i'm doing that as a person 
uh, playing this game like uh, on a more on a larger level uh, but i think also like interesting this yeah. year i've been writing um instructional written games but game so like there it's a set of instructions that's um that's sort of systems based but it's text um so i just it, it's interesting too because i think we think of systems as being digital or as being confined like like in a tabletop um setting it's not digital but it's the same like it's like physical digital you know you still have like numbers and counters and limits and stuff uh and uh, you can still have all of that type of thing that just exists in sets of instructions and like systemic game design can be just like you know a couple of sentences written on a sheet of paper that you then enact you can still have sort of these systems based interactions if you do it just right Right. And, and I mean, this reminds me of um, ludic formalism or structural formalism. I, I think I'm murdering that concept because I am very plainly not a art, not an art historian. But um, the structure of, of your work in the medium is how you express your artistic intention. And uh, there are a lot of early examples of this in games. They age to varying levels of quality, I suppose. I think sort of the classic one is The Marriage by Rod Humble, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and there's some other ones as well. I think Passage um, and this this sort of thing. So, you know, and then you look at modern versions of this, I suppose Jonathan Blow uh, has always has always been into this. I don't want to put words in people's mouth. I don't know. Braid and The Witness very much like you're dealing with this kind of opaque system and you're investigating it, you know, and, and yeah. And, 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 and that gives people the ability to kind of, uh, look into the depth of the structure and sort of take out of it, you know, a message. And this is, I suppose, the basis of art criticism, again, speaking outside of my, uh, <laughs> my sphere of, uh, of knowledge. Yeah, that seems right to me. Yeah. I'm all, as a, as a fellow PhD double, what's it, what's it above PhD? <laughs> Double Jinx PhD uh, games person. I'm also I also verify postdoc post postdoc. I'm a post post post. Yeah, Frank Lance said a little bit about this uh, oh, a bit ago. So there's some tweet threads I think to read. It's it's interesting to me how like the marriage was something that people just talked about like in in the mainstream press. Oh, really? Like I, well, may not mainstream, not like the New York Times, but like mainstream games press. And there was definitely a period there. Like Passage was another one of those games where like people were really paying attention to like lo-fi indie games. They were just doing really interesting stuff. And I feel like Frog Fractions kind of hit like right at the tail end of when people were caring about games of that kind of scope. Right. And I now nowadays like so there's so much more like and it just and this is just I think um, a factor of how there are so many more games in the, in the, at the Indian scale being made that uh, people are just pay, only paying attention to the ones that are really super polished like like back like ten years ago there was a lot more of a focus on interesting game design and nowadays I think there's a lot more of a focus on like super polished art design yeah yeah and this has made its way over to game design as well right i think a lot of people see game design as sort of a uh i mean it's not it's non-visual right there's you can't associate sort of a sense with with game design so a lot of people see it as sort of a distant 
um, even magical sort of concept as opposed to, oh, yeah, I'm a visual artist or, oh, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a musician. And but I disagree with this. Right. I think that your point is well taken and, and it pervades the design space as well, where game feels sort of a good example. We've kind of converged on like, yeah, this is what a game should feel like. This is how how juicy we should make a game. This is what right. you know, this is what a game should feel like. How do we make that as good, as good, as good, as good as possible? And that I think that also heavily overlaps with this sort of uh, modern indie kind of rapid prototype, single core mechanic, uh, you know, very small sort of form factor type game where people can kind of, they can celebrate excellence in, you know, and oh my gosh, you nailed this concept, right? Like you, I, I feel the square moving away from the circle. You know, this is like, this feels so good, right? Yeah, well, how, how was the screen shake on the marriage? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I, uh, in, for for <laughs> exactly. a class in in college, and like on it was like a computing theory class or something like philosophy. I made a a game that was like an attempt to be all juice. Like uh, you're 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 entering numbers into a spreadsheet. That's the whole <laughs> gameplay. Is you're just entering numbers into a spreadsheet, uh, but it's like massively juiced as as much as as humanly possible uh maybe maybe i'll right. put it out on itch check i did go to everybody go to jsenzel.itch.io and then now i'll now i'll <laughs> feel like i have to put it up for for the world to see <laughs> yeah i don't i don't so so it's interesting also right spreadsheets the, like you've never felt it's before. yeah it's literally you're just there's a number there's a column of numbers and you're copying that column of numbers and trying to like keep your number copying streak up <laughs> it's a good commentary i like the commentary i i think it's very 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 salient or you know i just i think it's that's something that people would i don't know very post it was very satisfying <laughs> to like have a, a project where literally you know like the gameplay programming took very little effort and then it's just like cracks knuckles on the on the juice hose <laughs> Right. Yeah, I do I I that idea is very funny to me. It it makes me think of like deep fried Coca-Cola, you know, just <laughs> I you've got to you've got to uh expound on that. <laughs> you kind of expand on that concept. Uh, that's it. It's a it's a carnival treat. What it actually is is Coca-Cola syrup mixed in with like a um oh, I forget the name of the thing, but it's where the, where they just drop dough into like funnel cake. A funnel cake, funnel cake, yeah, it's funnel cake, but flavored with Coca Cola syrup. But they call it fried Coke. Looks looks pretty good. And I just really like the idea of like, what are you frying? I mean, it's just it's just the concept <laughs> of frying something that you're eating. Right, right, right. You're eating fry. That's what you're eating. <laughs> yeah. I really like that. I like that a lot. Uh, that's all the time we have for topic lords tonight. Wow, that just went by. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good conversation. I'll do Thanks that. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Aaron, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at my website, which is aaronc.media. That's A-A-R-O-N-S-E-E um, -E dot media. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at A-C-G-A-U-D-E-T-T-E. That's A-C-G-A-U-D-E-T-T-E. Uh, and Jonah, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, I guess those are the same. I, again, that's works.rip is my website. And I'm also on Twitter, <laughs> Jonah Senzel, J-O-N-A-H-S-E-N-Z, like zebra, E-L. Uh, thanks so much for being on. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Had a great time. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.